Welcome everyone to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian radio program where we talk about the evidences for Christianity and for the biblical worldview. Our motto is helping Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, and I'm Kirk Hastings, your guest host for the week. That's right. Our normal guest host, Dr. Mike Larrakis, is away. But Kirk is an apologist and author in the area, and he has agreed to help us out once again. Welcome back to the studio, Kirk. It's nice to have you here. Thanks. Now, this is a new time for us. We were formerly Tuesdays at 5 p.m., but we are now going to be Sundays at 4 p.m. for an hour. So we hope that you will join us and listen every week. If you want to call in, the call-in number is 609-398-1020. If you want to email us, you can reach us at the Evidence for Faith website, evidenceforfaith.com, and that's the four is the number four, so evidence, the number four, faith.com. There's a page there to contact us, and you can contact us. The Evidence for Faith radio show, what's it all about? A lot of people will be new listeners today because this is a new slot, new time slot for us. The purpose of our show is really to... Um, encourage believers, for one, because we can give them the evidences that what they believe about God, the Bible, and Jesus is really true. We give them all the facts, all the arguments, all the evidence, and that is really encouraging and uplifting to fellow believers. But we want you non-Christians to listen in, too. Because we're going to especially address, you non-Christians. That's right. We're going to be addressing the obstacles that you have, why you're not a Christian, and what you're thinking that causes you not to not to investigate Christianity or not to be interested. We're going to address those things. If you're an atheist, if you adhere to another religion, listen to our show. Be open-minded. We will give you the evidence that will sweep away those objections that you have. And then finally, we give the ideas contained in the Bible that have impact on all areas of life. Politics, we just came off of Josh's show, Josh Henning Uncensored, and he does a great job addressing political issues. We give the background evidences that show that the truths in the Bible are true, reliable, and what they have to say about politics and economics. Today's show, we're going to be talking about the evidences for the resurrection, probably one of the most crucial facts that, um, one of the most crucial facts that is depend depends on, that Christianity depends on. Either the resurrection happened or it didn't. If it didn't happen, guess what, Kirk? Our faith is in vain, as the Bible says. Exactly right. Paul says that this fact is so crucial that if it's not true, don't even bother being a Christian at all. That's one of the things I like about the Bible is it's honest about what it says. It says, look, if the stuff that we're telling you here isn't true, then it's all in vain and don't believe it. But the flip side is it is true. That's right. 
That's right. And that's what we'll be sharing with you every week, Sundays at 4 p.m. We also tend to uh, share some of the news in the area that deals with apologetics when there are guest speakers coming into the area. We've done past guest speakers, and there's a, a speaker from Answers in Genesis coming to the area. He's going to be at Pilgrim Academy on Saturday the 21st. So if you know where Pilgrim Academy is, or if you don't and you're interested, just you can look it up online. It's at 301 West Moss Mill Road, which is near Egg Harbor City. And it's an all-day seminar from 9.30 until 2.30. costs $10 for an individual, $25 for the family, but includes lunch. So some terrific uh, topics that they'll be going over, evidences for the Bible being true. And if you have any questions about that or where it's located, you could call them at 965-2866. That's Pilgrim Academy. Very good. And I'm trying to get uh, James Gardner... Uh, as an interviewee next week. So we'll see if that... That should be interesting. Yeah, that's, we'll see if that works out. Also, for those who are near the Hamilton area, Victory Bible Church is still doing a apologetic series on cults and religions. Uh, they This is part of their Wednesday night prayer service, so at 7 p.m. they begin with prayer, and then they do um, a topic of a cult or a religion. Right now they're doing Islam, so that's been very interesting. Uh, coming up also in the Hamilton area, there's going to be a Truth Project. For those of you who are familiar with the Truth Project, it's a fantastic Christian worldview Bible study, and that's going to be starting in January 7th, Thursday nights at 7 p.m. for three months. If you're interested in that, you can use the contact page at evidenceforfaith.com. If you'd like to know more information, you can go to thetruthproject.org, thetruthproject.org. It's a fantastic Bible study run by uh, Focus on the Family. Hmm. So we'll also be doing a Defenders Club in Hamilton next year. If you're interested in that, that's going to be monthly meetings for people who are interested in apologetics. Again, use the contact page at evidenceforfaith.com. Well, let's get into our topic for today. The evidence for the resurrection. Now, Kirk, we, I've kind of broken down this topic into three different areas because I think there are three important points that have to be addressed when you're looking at is the resurrection, did the re- resurrection actually happen? Mm-hmm. The first is the death of Jesus. Did Jesus actually die mm-hmm. in the way that is described in the Bible? Right. Secondly, was the tomb found empty? Okay, mm-hmm. if there's somebody still in the tomb, then the resurrection didn't happen. Right, or and, if they got the wrong tomb or whatever. That's right. And thirdly, the appearances. Did Jesus really appear to people after his death? Mm-hmm. And do you, we have solid evidence that he did appear to them? That's that, right. That they just weren't making it up or imagining it. Mm-hmm. And with those three areas, you can build a solid case to show that the resurrection really did happen. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the evidence for Jesus' death. Christianity tells us that the purpose of Jesus' life was to die. You know, this death didn't hit Jesus by accident. He spoke about it. In Mark 10, 45, he spoke about his impending death and said that this is the story about the woman with the alabaster jar pouring, Mm -hmm. pouring, uh, perfume on his feet, and he said that 
people around the world would be telling about his death, about this woman and his death. So he mm. knew that his death was going to be told around the world. And then there's John 3.16, that you see people putting up on football games and mm-hmm. and everything. So Probably the best-known Bible verse of them all. Yep. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Mm-hmm. So there is a tremendous significance to the death of Jesus and very important to Christianity. So the problem is that a lot of people claim Jesus didn't die, at least not in the way that the Gospels indicate. Mm-hmm. You know, there are critics out there who say, no, no, this uh, uh, crucifixion stuff really isn't true. Mm-hmm. However, let me give you an example. Here's a quote from one of the uh, most uh, strongest critics of the New Testament. His name is John Dominic Crossan. He's the guy who is in the Jesus Seminar. You've heard of that. Mm-hmm. They're always you know, making news the on Easter. The infamous Jesus Seminar. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Easter and stuff, they're always trying to get on time, the cover of Time magazine. Uh-huh. Here's a quote from him. Jesus' death by execution under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Wow. Yeah. And that from a critic. Exactly. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it is. So so the truly knowledgeable critics, the educated critics, do not say that Jesus did not die by crucifixion. Yes. Yeah, Anybody they, who would try to claim that he didn't or that someone else died in his place or whatever is just not aware of the historical facts. That's right. There's not only, it's not just the Bible that says that Jesus was crucified. There's also biblical, there's also non-biblical sources, and they all agree that Jesus died by crucifixion. I've got a soundbite. This is from Professor Gary Habermas, probably one of the greatest uh, experts on the resurrection, written over 13 books, done a tremendous amount of historical research on the topic, and here's what he has to say about Jesus' death. Yes, I think the accounts of the resurrection can be trusted, although there are many scholars who will doubt and question them, saying either that a resurrection is impossible or that what is meant is some type of spiritual resurrection, simply to give hope that we can live again without there being a real historical event behind it. But there actually is a problem with this theory from a Jewish point of view, and that is that in Judaism, Uh, the hope of resurrection was something that came at the end of time. And although it was a physical resurrection, that is, it was coming back to life out of the dead, this was done physically at the end of time, and then the judgment would follow immediately. So had there been a fabrication of the resurrection by Jews that went in line with their doctrine, what the story they would have told would have been of Jesus raising up at the end of time or... All right. Well, we had we're ending now. We're having a little bit of technical difficulty. That was not Gary Habermas, but um, we will get back to that uh, cut. He's he is confirming what I was saying about uh, the biblical and non-biblical sources all agreeing that Jesus uh, did die by crucifixion. But Kirk, let's go into a little bit about Jesus's death, um, how okay. it happened, and some of the actual facts that we know from from the evidence. Right. First, the first thing that is that before he was crucified, Jesus was scourged. Okay, now this was 
uh, an incredible... In modern language, whipped. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he was whipped uh, with a, a, a terribly uh, traumatic type of whip that had uh, metal balls on the end of the leather thongs. So you I've, weren't just whipped with leather. I've heard it compared to a cat of nine tails. Yes. Where it has like nine strips of leather with like little pieces of metal embedded in the ends. Right. So your back is actually being struck by those little sharp metal pieces. Right. So you can imagine if somebody's applying that to your back with all their strength, what that would do to you. Exactly. And, and so many people who were scourged did not even survive the scourging. Right. They died from that alone. Exactly. Now, uh, how do people die in crucifixion? Crucifixion is probably one of the uh, most uh, terrible ways to die, and it was specifically designed that way. Hmm. Uh, death comes by asphyxiation. You basically suffocate because of the pressure that's on your chest when you're hanging from your arms. Right. And you can't take a deep enough breath to, to get uh, the oxygen that you need. So what they would do is, you know, they're nailed up there by their hands. They'd also nail the ankles with the legs bent. And this would allow the person the ability to breathe, but only if they could raise themselves up right. on those that nail that's holding their ankles to the cross. And, if and they it can, sounds like that in itself would be painful to do that. Absolutely torturous. So, you don't realize that normally when you breathe, your chest is actually moving up and down. So if somebody, if you're hanging in a position like that, it's really difficult for you to raise your chest up to bring a breath in. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, so, and this, because, because of this, and depending on the victim's condition, it could take days for the person to die, even up to like three days. Right, depending on how strong the individual was. Right. So, so if that was too long. If in a certain situation it was too long and they didn't want to leave them up on the cross for three days, that was the normal thing, just leave them up there until they died and the birds picked right. the flesh off, the, off of them. Right. They would shorten it by breaking their legs. So they would just yep. reach up with a mallet, smash the shin bones, break their legs so they could no longer stand up. They could no longer push their body up to breathe. Right. So anybody who then wasn't raising themselves up to breathe, automatically knew they're dead. Right. Guess what? They're not breathing. Hello? Yep. They're dead. <laughs> yep. Well, I think we've got our sound bite ready, so let's... Okay, all right, Josh is giving me the sign. Hold on. Um, so, so... Unfortunately, unlike the Bible, we do make mistakes from time to time here. Exactly. <laughs> now, so it was very obvious. I mean, even... even Anyone who was untrained, even witnesses, would be easily be able to tell if somebody was dead or not if you're on the cross. Sure. But the executioners who were carrying out this task were experts at it. Sure. They, they did this all the time. These were Roman soldiers that did it hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. So they really knew exactly what they were doing and were very good at it. That's right. And the, the, uh, the indication is that when... They needed to shorten the, the time. They came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they, so they didn't need to break his legs. Right. So, but what did the soldier do instead of breaking his legs? He still wanted to absolutely make sure that this guy was dead. So according to the Bible, one of the soldiers thrust his spear into Jesus' side. Right. It's like, okay, if I'm not sure this guy is dead, I'm going to make sure now. Right. Exactly right. 
Um, all right, uh, I think we've got that Habermas um, clip about Jesus's death. So let's see what he has to say. In spite of the fact that we have a dozen non-Christian sources outside the Bible, in spite of the fact that we have several more early Christian sources outside the New Testament, critical scholars will generally tell you that the secular sources and the Christian post-New Testament writings, they will generally tell you that they take a back seat to the New Testament references. They will use the references in the Gospels. They will use some of the references in Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following, for example, and Paul is highly revered uh, by these scholars. They will tell you those are the best sources because although they don't accept inspiration of the text, they think these texts pass their historical criteria and hence they use them. Okay, um, now that you've heard that, uh, the next point that we'd like to make here is that some people like to say that, oh, well, maybe they didn't actually finish the job, or maybe he didn't completely die. Maybe he just passed out, or right. uh, maybe from loss of blood, he just looked like he was dead for a little while and then came back. I mean, there's there's a lot of really... Um, w- when you study how the Romans did this crucifixion, um, these none of these ideas hold water, but there's there's quite a few different opinions that okay, he didn't really die. Right. Yeah, they call it the swoon theory. You yeah. Know, that he somehow um, wasn't quite dead, but in the cool of the tomb, he revived and then came out and said, <laughs> hey, look, I, I rose from the dead. Now, the problem with this is that this theory chooses which verses it says, oh, it looks at verses that have to do with the, that mention things that are spiritual, and it says, see, the the uh, apostles were really talking about a spiritual resurrection, and it ignores the things that talk about the physical resurrection, that he actually physically rose from the dead. Right. So they were teaching not that he, um, you know, was hurt and got better. <laughs> no, he actually rose from the dead. I wouldn't exactly call getting a spear in the side a spiritual experience, would you? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and this really, even though this sounds nice, and and many people do believe it, it doesn't explain the resurrection because Jesus would have been way too weak, way too bloodied and beat up. Remember, he had been scourged. Right. He's been tortured for hours and hours on the cross, and he's going to come out and convince somebody that he rose from the dead. Right. and, And convince them that, see, you believe in me and, you know, spread the gospel around the world and and die for this faith because of me. Anybody that's that strong and that able to come back like that should be on the WWF. (laughs) Here's, Here's another clip from Dr. Gary Habermas about the crucifixion. Certainly the fact that Jesus died on the cross is central to Christian belief. Why should we believe that he did not get off that cross alive? Well, you know, about 15 years ago, an article was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association where three scholars basically write Jesus' death certificate. And two of the things they found were this. Number one, we read that death by crucifixion is essentially death by asphyxiation. The centurion didn't have to have a medical degree. All he needs to know is how to suspend somebody in this position. Because when you're hanging with your arms stretched, especially the closer your arms are to your head, what you do is the weight of your body pulls down on the intercostal, pectoral, and deltoid muscles and increasingly you're not able to exhale. In short, you can't breathe. So the person who is hanging low on the cross without pushing up to breathe is not faking anything. He's simply dead. That's the first evidence that the person on the cross, Jesus in this case, is dead. Secondly, 
we read that one of the soldiers wanted to make sure he was dead. They didn't break his ankles because they could already see he was dead. He was already hanging low on the cross. So they stabbed him in the chest with a spear, and we read that blood and water came out of the, the wound. Around the heart, there's a sac that's called the pericardium, and it holds a thin, watery serum. The scholars in this journal article concluded that the spear had to have gone through his heart, and here's the reason. When you see water, you know it punctured the pericardium, but it couldn't have stayed in the pericardium because that sac is so incredibly thin. So we have a witness here that he was stabbed in the heart, and the article says this, he was already dead when the spear entered his chest, but if he wasn't, the spear would have killed him. Thirdly, in the 19th century, a famous critic named David Strauss put an end to the speculation that Jesus may not have died on the cross by saying this. He said, you know, this theory is not going to work, and here's the reason it's not. In order to have Christianity, you have to have the belief, at least the belief, that Jesus was raised from the dead. But if Jesus didn't die on the cross, what shape is he in? He should have died on the cross. He didn't. He should have died in the tomb, and on this theory, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have been able to roll the stone away, but he did. And then he walks a distance to where the disciples are, and what's he look like? He hasn't washed his hair. He's bleeding again. He's sweating. He's limping. He's holding his side. He's, he's in bad shape. And when he says, fellas, I told you I would rise from the dead, they're going to believe him? Here's the key. If he's not alive on the cross, if he's, if he's not dead, he's alive. He's alive, but he's not raised. And a Jesus who's not raised cannot be the founder of Christianity because you at least have to believe the resurrection to get the Christian church. And right there, with that critique of the 19th century, we see an end pretty much to scholarly speculation that he did not die on the cross. Now, after listening to uh, a uh, quote like that, I, I think it becomes pretty obvious that it's not really the people that say that Jesus died on the cross, that they have the burden of proving that he died. It's really the skeptics that say he didn't die on the cross, that they have to provide the proof that he didn't. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings, the guest host for the week. That's right. You can call us at 609-398-1020 if you'd like to challenge us or if you've got questions about the resurrection. Email, you can email us at evidenceforfaith.com, the number four, evidence, the number four, faith.com. All right, let's turn and look now at the evidence of the empty tomb. This is so crucial. The, the resurrection itself is crucial because it proves that Jesus' claims were true. In a sense, God, by raising Jesus from the dead, is authenticating his teachings. Putting his stamp of approval on Ex what happened. That's exactly right. Now, people say, well... This whole idea that Jesus rose from the dead, this is a legendary accretion that has built up over time. Many, many years later, they, they kind of figured out that this made good religion. And so they added, decades later, they added this idea that Jesus rose from the dead. But in reality, we find that there are very, very early creeds, at, at least before 35 AD. So you're talking within five years of the death of Jesus, the crucifixion in AD 30. Right. First Corinthians, they're found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, and this is where Paul tells 
what he was taught when he was first became a believer, and that includes the death, the crucifixion, the empty tomb, and the resurrection of Jesus. Here's uh, Dr. Gary Habermas again talking about this early doctrine. One thing we've lost touch with today is the importance of oral testimony in the ancient world. In a world where Plutarch's Life of Alexander is highly acclaimed but written almost 400 years later, we forget that when we don't have stenographers and we don't have tape recorders and we don't have television, we have a practice sense of oral tradition in the ancient world, especially among the Jews. Now when you look at this with the resurrection of Jesus, here's what you come up with. If we put the cross at approximately 30 AD, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 1 that his conversion was soon afterwards. Critics say one to three years. Let's just take an average of two. Put Paul about Paul's conversion about two years after the cross. Paul says three years later he went up to Jerusalem to talk to Peter and to James, the brother of Jesus, and they discussed the gospel. That's just five years later. And Paul says that they talked about the center of the faith. Now, 14 years later, Galatians chapter 2, they again talk about the gospel, and again, these other pillars of the church, Paul calls them, said that what he was preaching was the gospel facts. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 11, Paul says they were preaching the same thing he was. We get both of them saying that this preaching goes back to the early church. But again, Paul dates this material from just five years after the cross. That's how early this report comes. And we get this, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and following. Paul says, I delivered unto you that which I also received as of first importance, how that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And actually calls him Christ there. We have a witness there to who he thought he was. We get the claims of Jesus. We get his death. We get his resurrection. And Paul said, I got this from people very early. Critics think it happened about five or six years after the cross. So you've got eyewitness testimony from a very early time frame. Let me tell you something. In the ancient world, we do not see time gaps like this with careful eyewitness testimony thrown in with virtually no gap here. This is why critics find the testimony for the resurrection so difficult to explain away. Okay, so that was a uh, terrific evidence of the earliness of the doctrine of the resurrection. We have a caller on the line, so go ahead, caller. Well, uh, hi. Hello. Uh, the only thing that I have a problem with is that um, what you're discussing there mm -hmm. about Jesus' resurrection and, uh, and even Christianity in general, that people must embrace Christianity in order to be saved or gain eternal life. Uh, when you talk this way, the only problem I find is that uh, Christianity is only a small fraction uh, of the Earth's population that belong to Christianity. Maybe I think it's about a billion, roughly, I think there is, uh, the figures I heard. Somewhere around a billion uh, when you count uh, North and South America and, and the people in Europe. But you must also consider the fact that uh, most of the Earth's population, such as Red China, which has about, uh, what, close to 2 billion people there. You've got India with over a billion, that's three. And then you've got Indonesia and other places around the world. That's, and, and don't forget the Middle East, which is a billion Muslims right. there. So you're talking about uh, maybe uh, at least 4 billion people on this planet that will probably never embrace Christianity in the foreseeable future, and places like 
Red China, they don't even allow proselytizing there, or they don't allow Christian churches, or someone going over there as a missionary and, and preaching the gospel, going house to house, or trying to convert the Chinese people to Christianity. So I guess my, my point is, or my question would be to you, um, is God only going to save the, uh, say, the one billion people that embrace Christianity uh, in the world and then neglect the other three or four billion people that will never embrace or never, even by their governments, be allowed to embrace Christianity? Are all those people going to uh, be condemned to everlasting um, death or everlasting punishment um, because they don't believe or they will never get a chance to believe? Is that Would that be fair on God's part to say, oh, those people are going to be destroyed et- eternally and only the one billion Christians in, on the earth, they're the only ones that's going to be, uh, receive salvation? All right. That is a terrific question. Um, and obviously you've been thinking about that because you, you phrased that question. It's a very common question. You phrased it very well. What's your name? Ron. Ryan? Ron, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Ron. Mm-hmm. Ron, great question. Uh, I hope to, in the future, I will do an entire show on this topic because I think it is very, very important. Um, It's something that, you're right, it is in the Christian doctrine. In fact, uh, this is specifically taught by Jesus himself, who said that the way is narrow and the way to hell is broad. So many people are going to be going to hell few people will go to heaven. Um, And this is definitely, you know, if you object to this doctrine, um, you are objecting to Jesus's teachings. Now, I I want to try to uh, explain it a little bit more. Well, that's that. See, that's the good question. (laughs) Is it fair? Let me tell you this. When all those billions of people die, they're going to go before, they're going to stand before a judge, right? The Bible teaches that everyone will die once and then face judgment. When they face judgment, they are going to face a perfectly fair, a totally truthful, honest, fair judge who will give them justice. They will receive total justice. So if they have done If they have committed any moral crimes, they will be punished for those moral crimes. If they are found to be innocent, they will will not be punished. And no one there will be able to point to that judge and say, you're being unjust. You are punishing someone who has not done something wrong. So you can either face the justice of a perfectly just, totally unjust, all-knowing and just God, or you can receive his mercy. And that is the message that Jesus came to tell us. Could I slip in a quick point here, too? Also, um, that is an excellent question, and it's a very disturbing question. Uh, I've asked myself that question in the past. You know, how, how could God condemn so many people that don't accept what the Bible says? But Really, um, when you think about what we're doing here today, we're presenting evidences that we can verify either historically or scientifically or whatever for whether what the Bible is telling us is true or not. 
And I think what our caller is saying is he's saying, well, there's not a lot of people on the earth that accept this, but is truth really dictated by popular vote? Just because a lot of people may think something, does that necessarily make something true or not? And the answer has to be no. There have been many ideas throughout history that people firmly believed for decades or hundreds or even thousands of years, and then later on they found out through scientific advances or historical discoveries or whatever that they were mistaken. So really, the difference between what we're talking about here is we're trying to look at the historical evidence that that indicates is what the Bible is telling us about what Jesus did and said. Is this, in fact, true, or is it not true? And that's a totally different thing from uh, whether it's popular or not, or how many people accept it and how right. many people don't accept it. Yeah, well, that's... well, I was going to say, uh, I don't think uh, that uh, many people will give you the argument about uh, Jesus' uh, resurrection and, and so forth like that, his death and resurrection. My point is that um, uh, is it just on God's part to say that um, your other gentleman explained that uh, when they die, they're all going to go up and, and stand up in heaven and, and, be, and be judged. But even before they, they reach that point, uh, can we blame all these uh, billions of people on the earth when you've got a place like uh, Red China that don't even allow Christian? I mean, if you go over there preaching the gospel in Red China, say, well, I'm going to convert people, and I'm going to tell them about the resurrection and the death of Christ, you're going to wind up like many of the past missionaries. Well, that, that that's right, that's right an in interesting prison. point. Um, but <laughs> right you, on that? you may not be aware of the fact that Red China is actually one of the countries in the world that has one of the largest growing Christian populations in the world right now. Many of them are underground because of what you're saying, because of the government persecution of yeah, them. That's right. But there are actually millions and millions and millions of Christians and more being added every day in Red China. So to say that all everyone that lives in Red China doesn't believe in Christianity is not really an accurate statement either. All right, Ron, I hope that helps you. We're going to address that uh, question more in-depth in a future show, so keep all listening right. to us, okay? Nice talking to you. Okay, thanks, Ron, for your call. Thanks. All right, well, let's, uh, we're, we're talking about the empty tomb, and this is very important because uh, uh, the, the skeptics try to use this to put in different theories as how to explain the resurrection away. Now, most skeptics um, do agree that Jesus was buried, it's, and all four Gospels agree that Jesus was buried. There's this idea that uh, one or two skeptics have put out there that uh, Jesus' body was just thrown away, kind of, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, never was buried. Um, but this really doesn't explain how, then, the concept of a burial became uh, prominent in the early doctrines of the Church that we already showed were within five years uh, of the crucifixion. How did they come to believe that he was buried if his body was simply thrown away? And there's so much evidence against the fact that that, hap that could have possibly happened. Um, for instance, if they did t toss his body away somewhere, which actually at that time was quite common for common criminals, that they didn't have a burial place and they would just dump them somewhere. 
But if that had happened in Jesus' case, how hard would it have been for the people who did that to come forth later when people were claiming Jesus rose from the dead and say, no, he didn't. I dumped his body over here, and here it is right here. Yeah, exactly. But no one ever came forward and did that. Right. That's right. And and three of the Gospels report that the women were watching while his body was buried, while he was put in the tomb. Sure. They were watching. So they knew where the tomb is. There's no alternative account from the first century. No. Uh, if his body had been thrown away, there would have somebody would have written down that this is what happened. There's no eyewitness accounts of anything else being done with him other than what the Bible records. Right. And, and the fact that the three gospel reports have different wordings, you know, they describe the events in different words, indicates that these are completely independent versions of the burial story. They're not right. a, coll- a collusion. They didn't get together and say, oh, you know, we better— well, Let's say this and let's say that, and they right. did this and they did that. That's right. If they had done that, all the accounts would be exactly alike. That's exactly right. So, um, you know, there's little details um, that uh, really speak to the fact that it must be true. Um, there's this, the fact that Jesus of Arimathea um, was involved. And, uh, and this was a very prominent person, too, exactly. That's at right. that time. This so, wasn't just some Joe Schmo that came off the street. That's ex- exactly right, member of the Sanhedrin. So if this had been all just made up, there would have been people who would say, no, that's not true. We know Jer- Joseph Ar- Arimathea. He says this never happened. Sure. So, um, so there are a lot of little details, little internal evidences that show that uh, he was indeed put in a tomb and that the tomb was found empty. All four Gospels report that the tomb was found empty. Mm-hmm. So, um, that, you know, and again— this And even the critics at that time, you know, the, the Roman soldiers and the Jewish authorities or whatever, none of them came forward and, and contradicted that statement. Right. There's—I've got another quote here, a little sound clip from uh, Gary Habermas uh, speaking on the uh, empty tomb. So let's listen to that. Certainly the empty tomb— by itself does not require a resurrection, but it's a good building block to resurrection. And we have a number of evidences that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was empty. In fact, a list that I've put together recently from reading critical literature, we have almost two dozen reasons for believing this. Let me share a few with you. Probably the best reason for believing in the empty tomb is that it's reported by women. You might say, what kind of a reason is that? But in the ancient world, the ancient Mediterranean world, the more important something was the less likely that you were going to get a woman to be your chief witness because they were frequently rejected in a court of law. So why does the New Testament say unanimously that women find, found the tomb empty? Answer, because they did. So they would not have gone with this unless it was what happened. And the fact that women are the earliest witnesses is probably the best single answer. Here's another one. Why the city of Jerusalem? I mean, claim anywhere in the world that Jesus' tomb is empty, and people are probably are not going to bother to check it out. But when you say the tomb right down the street here is empty, somebody can say, ah, boys, there's a body here. Now, critics say, well, yeah, but 50 days later when they started the preaching, they wouldn't recognize that body. That misses the point. 50 days later, if there's any body in that tomb, the tomb is not empty. And Christian proclamation was the tomb was empty, and they proclaimed that in Jerusalem. The fact that it was made in the city in which he was buried is an incredible witness that that tomb must have been empty. Thirdly, 
we have the fact that the Jewish leaders themselves admitted the empty tomb. They thought there was some hanky-panky going on. They thought somebody came and, and stole something here. Somebody's pulling a fast one on us, but they admit the tomb is empty. And by admitting that, what you have is what's called enemy attestation. You have critics saying that this is true. One more thing. We have multiple layers of tradition in the Gospels. Critics think they can find five of these. But we have more than one source. We have several sources that record the empty tomb. And multiple sources are excellent. To have more reasons than one for believing the empty tomb is a strong reason. So for these and other reasons, we are on good grounds on the historical evidence alone to say that the tomb which Jesus was buried was later found empty. All right. If you've just tuned in, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. And I believe we have another caller on the phone. Go ahead, caller. Hi. You know, what puzzles me is the Old Testament, it tells you, don't put any other God before you have a God. The Messiah comes and says that they're God, you know, or the Messiah throws stones, it's blasphemy and all this. So I asked him, a Christian, um, one of these preachers, because uh, I'm from a mixed marriage, mm-hmm. and they... He told me, go to Isaiah 53. Yes. And it tells you he was born of a carpenter and all this. So the only thing is, sometimes I get confused. What about the Jewish people? Are they going to go to heaven? Or are the Christians going to go to heaven? See what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, um, let me just briefly, it's kind of the same question that Ron was talking about, only specifically talking about um, Jewish people. So let's not just pick on them. Let's include anyone. Again, what we're saying is that, and the, the Christian message is that God has given us an amnesty program. So you have a choice. You can face judgment or you can receive amnesty. So I've decided to take God up on his amnesty program, and I'm going to be declared not guilty. So that, that's the real crux. Do you face the justice of God, a perfectly righteous, fair, and just God who will punish every sin, or do you receive the mercy that he freely offers through Jesus Christ? That's the answer to your question. Yeah, and also somebody said something. This made a lot of sense when I said, you know, where are they? I don't see them, you know, God, even though I do believe in God and Jesus. Where are they? They said, look, you don't see gravity, but without it, what would you do? You'd be flying all over. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, the mere fact that you can't see God, um, uh, you know, there are lots of things that we believe are real. Um, that you can't see. You can't see atoms or molecules either, but they're there, and everything in this world is made up of them. Right. So um, so that's true. All right. Thank you very much, caller. Okay. So, um, Okay, uh, let's go through a couple other facts associated with uh, Jesus's uh, being buried and resurrected. Uh, when he was arrested, uh, it's interesting to note in the Bible accounts that all the disciples deserted him. Uh, which uh, was a pretty rotten trick, but uh, it's really a very human trick. Mm-hmm. But the Bible is very honest about that, that even his friends deserted him at the, at the final hour. And even Peter, one of his closest friends and disciples, ended up denying that he even knew Jesus. Um, they were that afraid for their lives at what was going on here uh, that 
in the stress of the moment, you know, all of a sudden they were like, oh, I don't know this guy. I, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I don't have anything to do with this. And we can kind of, I think we can kind of all understand that under the situation. But, of course, that doesn't excuse it. Uh, and they, they certainly did not believe Mary's story. Uh, right. Mary, the, the first one who went to the tomb Sunday morning and came back and said, he's not there. The tomb is empty. And you can imagine all the disciples looking at her and saying, what? You know, what would you think if one of your closest relatives had died and was buried yesterday and one of your family members comes to you today and says, he's not really dead. His, his, his grave is empty. Yeah, they were, um, they were afraid. The, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, th- that person would be an immediate candidate for a rubber room. Right, right. Yeah, so, they, they were hiding behind locked doors. Yep. Um, you know, they, and, and then when they write that Jesus appeared, how do they write that they reacted? They were terrified. Yep. Yeah, they thought he was a ghost. Yep. So, they didn't know what to think, really. Right. But it's all the more amazing that the practically overnight change that happened in these these men that all of a sudden they're like preaching everywhere in an incredibly bold manner you know jesus is risen from the dead his tomb is empty he's alive you know something dramatic had to have happened in order to make that kind of a severe personality change in all of these guys overnight exactly right they and they were so changed that they wound up dying as martyrs preaching right. the gospel. Right. Here's a here's a sound clip from a professor Daryl Block. He's a professor of New Testament and he what he talks about the uh, resurrection here. There are two major supporting facts that underlie the resurrection. The first are the numerous appearances that took place right after the resurrection. People saw him. Even skeptics saw him. Thomas when he heard the first reports of these appearances, was doubtful and said, I won't believe it unless I can touch the holes in his hands. How dramatic could he be? He was alluding directly to the crucifixion. And yet, within a week, he got his appearance. Jesus showed up and said, you can touch the holes in my hands if you want. At that point, Thomas was so taken back, he didn't even make the effort to touch the holes in his hands. He simply bowed and said, my Lord and my God. So the appearances are one point of evidence for the resurrection. The second point of evidence for the resurrection uh, involves the transformed lives of the apostles. Before the resurrection they were timid and uncertain. Peter denied his Lord uh, the night in which he was being tried and yet within weeks he was proclaiming him even at the threat of being imprisoned or dying. Something created that difference between the way Peter was before and after, and that something was the resurrection. All right, great. So again, solid evidence that the resurrection really did happen. Now that third and final important part of this chain of evidence is the resurrection appearances. And um, these accounts, these appearances that are described by the apostles cannot reasonably be explained away. I mean, Jesus really did die on the cross. The tomb really was empty. If Jesus did appear to his followers, then he did rise from the dead because we've already proved that he did die. So the Gospels report that um, the women not only found the empty tomb, but they were also first to see Jesus alive. Now, 
in first century Palestine, Kirk, I'm sure you know this, women were considered unreliable, and they simply were not allowed to testify in court. So any statement that says, hey, the women saw Jesus rise from the dead, they saw the tomb was empty, this would never be put into a story that was made up. Sure. And in most ancient cultures, they really didn't take the testimony of women as, you know, something that they would depend on. It was always what the men said that counted. Yeah. So the fact that the Bible records this, that the women were not only the first to see him, but the first to proclaim that he wasn't there, that in itself argues for its truth, because no writer in that period of time would have made up a story like that. That's right. So if they if they had made it up, they would have said that um, Peter or John, you know, um, they trusted in Jesus and they knew he was going to rise from the dead. And sure enough, Jesus appeared to them and gave them solace for keeping the faith. Those were the kinds of things that would have happened. So, so really, critics agree that people who disagree with the Bible at least agree that the women thought that they saw Jesus. Right. And that is itself very strong evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead. Right. And the Gospels also report that Jesus appeared to his male followers after that, individually and in groups, sometimes as many, sometimes as, many as 500 people at a time he appeared to. That's right. And that, that's explained in one of those early creeds, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. If you get out your Bible and look that up, that is one of the earliest teachings, probably the earliest creed of the uh, Christian faith. That when you became a Christian, you were taught to memorize this particular section of the Bible. Uh, it was before the Bible was written, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Right. Another reason we can uh, have faith that the Bible accounts are accurate is that they, they really stress trying to report what really happened, including facts that are embarrassing yes. to the people writing this. That's right. I mean, can you imagine Peter uh, telling one of the gospel writers about the story of him denying Jesus three times? Right. I mean, even if he had done that, most people would not admit to that. They wouldn't, you know, right. write tell somebody writing their biography, put all this dirt in there and make me look as bad as possible. Right, exactly. So so the critics do actually take these, uh, these writings of the appearances of Jesus very seriously. I've got three quotes from three different New Testament uh, critics. Here's uh, Reginald Fuller says that the experiences did occur, even if they are explained in purely natural terms, is a fact upon which both believer and unbeliever can agree. Okay? Um, here's a, a, another guy, Michael Grant, who says, their testimonies cannot prove them to have been right in supposing that Jesus had risen from the dead. However, these accounts do prove that certain people were utterly convinced that that is what he had done. Here's a final quote from a New Testament scholar and critic E.P. Sanders, that Jesus' followers, and later Paul, had resurrection experiences um, is, in my judgment, a fact. What the reality was that gave rise to the experiences, I do not know. So the critics are unwilling to accept the obvious ramifications that these men's lives changed because they saw, actually saw the risen Jesus Christ. 
there's not too many other things that would explain their, the change in these men's lives other than a, a very dramatic happening such as the resurrection. Right. So um, now what the critics do say is that the idea of a physical body resurrection was a later legendary um, addition, you know, kind of built up over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the independent accounts verify that what the apostles were describing was a physical resurrection, not a spiritual. They were not simply saying that Jesus spiritually rose. They wouldn't have believed this in the first place, because that's not the kind of resurrection that Jewish people believed in. They right. believed in a physical resurrection. It was a Greek idea to believe in spiritual um, a spiritual uh, life and not in physical, but this these accounts are simply too descriptive of the physical body. Right. Um, so the, what the skeptics do is they pick and choose which verses um, are authentic, and they side with the supernatural ones rather than the physical. And we've got too many of the New Testament documents dated too close to Jesus's death to really have allowed any time for any legends to have built up around it. That's right. Everyone that knew this story and knew Jesus was still around and could verify whether it was true or not. Okay. So um, so some, so the skeptics are looking for a way out. Some of the theories admit that the empty tomb, uh, you know, they, they admit the empty tomb, but they deny the appearances, like the wrong tomb theory or stolen body theory. Um, others admit the appearances, but they deny the empty tomb. Uh, hallucinations, that kind of a thing. Swoon theory covers uh, both of those, but it fails to the it falls to the evidence of uh, that um, Jesus was actually dead. So all of these claim theories fail. What we find is that the resurrection makes sense of the empty tomb, the appearances, and Jesus's unique claims to be the Son of God. It's the best explanation for all the evidence Evidence. that we have. That's right. So you've been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks and Kirk Hastings. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.